This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hello and welcome to Saber, production of iHeartRadio. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we have a classic episode for you about oysters. One of my very, very favorite foods. Oh, me too. Me too. Annie, have you gotten to eat any oysters since this entire shutdown thing? Oh, yes, I have. (laughs) And I actually, I was very concerned about it because it is one of my favorites. And I just thought, you know, there's no way I can get delivery oysters. (laughs) I don't think that would work. Uh, But I was discussing it with our good friend and coworker, Ramsey, who's been on this show. Mm -hmm. And he made sure he went and bought some at... uh, your DeKalb Farmer's Market. Okay. Um, and we had a socially distanced oyster hangout. Oh. And it was lovely. And I loved it so much that I had a socially distanced bachelorette party, <laughs> which was very interesting, uh, a couple weeks ago. And I got some oysters. And they were so impressed with me because I had to shuck them myself, which is varying degrees of difficult, but it's not really that impressive. But they were very impressed. They'd never seen it before. And I was like, yeah. But then some of them were so hard, I had to look up a YouTube tutorial about what to do with a difficult (laughs) oyster. (laughs) Surprisingly, there are a lot of tips. So, Oh, no, I I, I bet. I mean, people enjoy an oyster. Um, They come in their own protective casing. So, yeah, sometimes you have to, sometimes you need help. It's okay to need help. It's true. Oh, yeah. And I, I know I've said it before, but I do feel that shucking can be a very dangerous activity, especially for someone clumsy like me and if there's yeah. any alcohol involved. 
Yeah, which, yeah. We we go into that a little bit towards the end of this of this mm-hmm. our classic oyster episode. Um, because I still have to this day never shucked one myself because I, I always feel like I'm like by the time, yeah, by the time oysters come out, I'm like, I'm like, I, I have had at least one alcoholic unit. <laughs> yes. And you're giving me like a knife? No. <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, oysters can have, you know, like barnacle. They, the they themselves, themselves are sharp. Yes. But that is one tip I found is to use like a rag or something to hold the oh, oyster. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm stepping up in the world of oyster shucking slowly but surely. <laughs> I'm actually planning on getting some more soon. Oh, doing it again. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was uh, I was reading. There, there's all of these like oyster mail order services. Um, a Ooh. bunch of places here in Atlanta, anyway, that do serve oysters are doing like like we'll just we'll just deliver you a bucket of oysters. Like you figure <laughs> out what to do with it. Kind of situations. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I recommend it. I I mean. <laughs> It is a endeavor. Maybe, may, maybe this will be the thing that gets me to shuck my own oysters. Maybe this it's is time for the you silver to lining of COVID nineteen. Yeah. Yes, yes, we could do a socially distanced uh, oh. oyster hangout. Oh, can we? Oh yes. my gosh, I want that so much. Okay, all right. We need some oysters. We need some absinthe and uh, hot sauce. Required. And oh yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. lemon juice. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Oh no. <laughs> now I want this right now. I know. <laughs> but Annie, it is only 11 a.m. <laughs> That's perfect oyster time. It is. You know, yes. you're right. Um mm-hmm. and yes, yeah, so speaking of, uh we we did we did this oyster episode back in September of 2017. Ooh. Um which by our current reckoning is like 49 years ago. Yeah. Mhm. <laughs> No one was even alive then, um, as the old wizard so. joke goes. Uh, yeah, the episode was called The World is Your Oyster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we really need to catalog all these, all the titles that were and never were. <laughs> I don't know. I'm always like, oh, yeah, I bet I had 57 title ideas for this. I, I still have an archive of all of our old email chains. So, yeah. I mean, I would have to go searching to find it, but, mm-hmm. yeah. Yes, I mean, there is time. <laughs> I don't know if that's the best way to spend it, but I don't know that I'm <laughs> spending it the best I can anyway, so. <laughs> oh, true enough. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, we are going to let former Annie and Lauren take it away. Welcome to Food Stuff. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we are talking about oysters. Ah, shucks. <laughs> oh. oh, right away. <laughs> and there's so much to talk about, so we're going to dive right in. So, an article I read on NPR called Oysters, the Seas Version of Fine Wine. Hmm. And that's partially because the flavor of them is kind of determined by the water they're in, and it's called Mirar. Wow. Like terroir. For wine, but with water and oysters. Huh. Yeah, the, the flavors that you get from oysters come from the, the salts and minerals in the water where they grow and from what they eat. But oysters, 
What are they? I don't know. Why don't you tell me? I'm gonna. Okay. Uh, so yeah, oysters are a bivalve. Uh, that means two-shelled mollusk, uh, and they live in shallow salt water. They are related to the oysters that make pearls that are used in jewelry and other decorations. And food oysters can make pearls, but but they're two they're two different species. I see. Mm-hmm. And oysters are filter feeders. That means that they suck in water and strain out like plankton and algae and bacteria and and wee particles of plant and animal matter for consumption. They grow their shells by taking in calcium carbonate from the water around them and kind of forming it up into microstructures that they add layers to over time. Uh, calcium carbonate particles get into water when certain types of rock or old oyster shells erode. Those shells, a.k.a. valves, the bi-valve, bi-shell thing, yeah, uh, the, the shell where the oyster sits is called the left valve. I don't know why. Huh. That's It, it is. Um, it, it's the longer and rounder of the two. And the right valve, in contrast, is shorter and flatter and acts sort of like a lid. Um, they're hinged with a ligament, and the oyster can keep its shell closed with with a adductor muscle, which which is a really strong little muscle. It's like their one single muscle that they've got, basically, uh, for, for stuff other than, like, pumping their blood, which is an important thing to do as well, I suppose. That's um, true. But, yeah, uh, this, this adductor muscle. Um, if you've ever seen an oyster in its shell, the adductor muscle is the is the tough circular bit that's more firmly attached to the shell than the rest of the oyster. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I've eaten many an oyster in my day, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh-huh. Um, oh, uh, well, while we're here, um, oysters are basically still alive when the when we eat them raw or when we start cooking them. Uh, go ahead and take a second to feel bad about that, if you weren't aware. I know I did. That's heavy stuff. Because I also have eaten a lot of oysters in my time, and suddenly the walrus and the carpenter oh, I know. is just, it, it's thrown into a whole new horrific light. It was already bad. I know, and right? Now, even worse. But this is like the gritty DC reboot. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you know that they're still alive. But okay, um... The reason that we do this is not that humans are terrible monsters. Hmm. Um, well, we might be, but not about this. Uh, it's, it's that oysters can harbor some really pretty nasty bacteria after they die, so you want to eat them as fresh as possible, which in this case means as close to living as possible. And I mention this here because you can tell a healthy live oyster from a sick or a dead one because that adductor muscle stops working and their shell will crack open all on its own. Huh. If it makes you feel any better, they don't have like a central nervous system or anything like that, so... Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I guess a tiny bit. Yeah. Uh, they're they're real tasty, though. But so, um, in order for oysters to grow to a point where you can eat them and feel bad about it later, first, uh, an adult oyster has to reproduce by sending their their sperm or their eggs out into the water to find each other. Oh, romantic. Uh, is it? No. No, not at all. Um, and then the wee baby oyster larvae that, that result from, from those watery unions um, spend a few weeks swimming around and eating stuff, um, which seems like a pretty good life. Uh, but eventually, the weight of their developing shell makes them sink down to the sea floor, oh. upon which they, they kind of find a place to settle down. Um, meanwhile, they've grown a foot to help them crawl to a good spot. Which they do. Um, and, and, and a good spot is someplace that's hard and solid with a good water current running across it. And then they anchor to that, reabsorb their foot, and, and, move, into, and move into their kind of teenage stage, uh, whereupon they are called spats. Since they have different organs at all of these different stages, oysters' growth to maturity is considered a metamorphosis. Like, 
like a butterfly in reverse. Sure. Yeah. I have to say I was not expecting the phrase reabsorb their foot. <laughs> it's a good one. It is. It yeah. is. Uh, at this point, they take another three or four years to reach maturity. They're considered tastiest when they're eaten before the age of five, specifically right before winter uh, when they've stored up some fat for the cold months, so like October, September kind of kind of area. Um, but they can live up to 30 to 50 years in the wild. Wow. Yeah. Stuff, man, I... This, this is an episode where I learned a lot, and I'm really excited about most of it in slightly horrifying ways. So all of this definitely happens on its own in nature. And you can harvest wild oysters depending on the laws in your area and whether or not you have a hammer that you feel like going out into the water and, you know, pounding off some oysters with. Right. But you can also farm them. And oyster farmers all work a little bit differently depending on their local conditions, but but generally the process is, uh, you know, you, you select a few oysters with good-looking shells as breeders, set up tanks that are ideal for spawning, move the resulting dust-sized, like dust-particle-sized larvae into hatchery tanks, then in a couple weeks move the pepper-flake-sized babies into these screened-in boxes in open water called upwellers, then move the spat-ready quarter-inch kiddos into nursery cages. And then finally, when when uh, when the little buggers are a couple inches long, you just scatter them free-range a little bit out from the shoreline and uh, let them let them settle in. Um, and moving them around like this at all of their different growth stages lets you control the, the temperature, the salinity, the flow of water, and exposure to, to all kinds of different nutrients at their various stages of growth. It, it also encourages them to develop the ideal shell shape which is the, the left valve should be should be deep and, and very rounded to allow for a good bodily growth. And, and also these methods make it easier to harvest the oysters later. They're not going to be as firmly attached to the uh, bottom of the of the water surface or the oh. bottom of the stuff that the water is on top of. Wild oysters, by the way, usually root themselves to the shells of other oysters because that's a really easy way to get calcium carbonate out of the water. Uh, over time, this winds up creating these vast reefs of oyster shells that are really great for the environment. They, they provide structures for other aquatic critters to, to live in and around. Uh, they filter and clarify the water, like one to eight gallons of water per hour per oyster. Wow. Yeah, um, as they, they suck it in to, you know, breathe and find food. And uh, they even prevent shoreline erosion by acting as wave breakers. So giant reefs of oysters. If you've never seen an image of this, go st stop what you're doing. I mean, unless you're like driving or something. Yeah, don't do that. Go, go look it up and then come back. Yes. It's pretty incredible. I feel like we've become a marine biology podcast all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's okay. Br bring us back to to bring some us back to some kind of financial number. Okay, here we go. In 1996, the U.S. produced an estimated 40.4 million pounds of oyster meat, with Louisiana being the largest producer. That same year, the U.S. oyster industry made something like 101.6 million a year. Hoof. Yeah. Um, and in the U.S., we ate about 2.5 billion oysters in 2015. Oh, my goodness. And 85% of those came from the Atlantic coast. Huh. Yeah. Hmm. So that's kind of the state of where we are and what oysters are. So let's look at how we got here. But first, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. 
Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes. Oh, and I wanted to mention before we get uh, deep into this history here that uh, m- most of most of our, our research was based in European and American uh, uh, culture and, and history of oysters because that's where we live and uh, that's what we were able to find. Uh, perhaps in the future we'll have an opportunity to uh, to go into some of the history from the the Asian side of things, the Eastern side of things. But but for now, let's hear mostly about the West. So. 18th century satirist Jonathan Swift wrote, He was a bold man that first ate an oyster. True, but actually, according to foodtimeline.org, people have been eating oysters since the dawn of humanity forwards. That's a quote. Wow. Food historians think this is because oysters are relatively easy to collect and preserve. They're versatile and they're nourishing. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the fact that you could eat them raw was a big selling point in the earliest days of eating things as well. Yeah. Yeah. And also you could use the shells for spoons, so oh, practical. Yeah. yeah, good tools. Mm-hmm. We can't pin down exactly when ancient humans first started cultivating oysters, but in 2007, a group of scientists found 174,000-year-old evidence of humans enjoying shellfish dinners in South Africa. What? Shellfish is such a fun word to say. Shellfish. Shellfish. Archaeologists have discovered ancient middens, and these are like big shell heaps, dating back to 2000 BCE along the coast of Japan, and 10,000-year-old middens have been found along Australia's coastline. Oh, wow. Yeah. Middens dating back to 1,000 years can be found along the east and west coast of North America. Oh, my goodness. 
Yes, and going back 2,000 years, we have evidence of the Romans who were like huge oyster fans. Oh, big into it. Oh, man. Yeah. Collecting oyster seed growth near the mouth of the Adriatic Sea and bringing them back to Italy for growth. They did this by um, moving tiny little oysters with twigs and placing them somewhere calmer with higher salinity. And this resulted in a fatter, tastier end product. And the Romans weren't the only ones doing this either. The Japanese used bamboo to do the same thing, and the Greeks used pieces of pottery. Uh, side note here about the Greeks and oysters. The, the Greeks used oyster shells in part of their democratic process for, for, for a little while in ancient Athens, um, circa 480 BCE. If, if there's like someone that you thought was really detrimental to society hanging out, sure. you could write their name on, on a flat piece of oyster shell called an ostracon. And if that person's name turned up often enough on these ostracons, then then they'd be kicked out of town for 10 years. 10 years? 10 years. Oh, my goodness. Be, be nice to your fellow neighbors. Yes. Um, this is where we get the word ostracize from. Oh, that's so great. Uh, eventually, they switched from shells to bits of pottery for ease of use, but the name stuck. I love it. <laughs> They're so useful, these oyster shells. They really are. Uh, The Romans, getting back to them, they imported oysters from all over the Mediterranean and the European coast. Wherever they could find them, really, they they just were so in love. Um, And there's evidence of the Romans importing British oysters from Kent, which means they must have been preserving or brining them so that they'd survive the journey. Yeah, I think pickled oysters were a really big thing for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I've never had one pickled. I haven't either. Uh, It's also probably important to note that these, they were eating um, much thinner. The oysters they were eating were much thinner than the ones we know now, just because uh, they didn't have all the, they didn't have all the knowledge of the techniques of how to get them to be so plump and fat. Yeah. Yes. Anyway. It was around this time that writers like Pliny, our good buddy, and the poet Ausonius wrote just tons and tons about different oysters from different regions, comparing and contrasting their their qualities and their flavors. And it was also around this time that the whole oysters are an aphrodisiac thing popped up. In Greek mythology, the goddess of love, Aphrodite, sprung out of an oyster shell mm-hmm. and moments later gave birth to Eros. Oh, that's the, startling. I know. Ugh. Moments. Thus the word <laughs> aphrodisiac. Oh, okay. Yeah. Huh. And people believed it too. Casanova, famous 18th century lover, mover, shaker, allegedly would eat around 50 for breakfast, 50 Oof. oysters. Uh, talk about the breakfast of champions. <laughs> And we're going to talk about more of the actual science of that. Or lack thereof. Yeah. The aphrodisiac thing, not the goddess of love thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, later. Yes. By the time of their heyday in Roman civilization, you showed off just how much money you had by stuffing as many oysters in your face (laughs) as quickly as possible. This was especially the case for the inland elite since the cost of transport drove up the cost of oysters. Oh, I see. Yeah, but in places close to water like London, oysters were plentiful, very popular, and on the whole, inexpensive. Hmm. Yes. To prevent spoilage, oysters were often fried and enjoyed immediately after harvest. Oh. That sounds so good. I'm so glad that people have been frying them forever, too. That's, That's terrific. I know. Roman entrepreneur Sergius Orata looked to profit off of his countrymen's love of oysters, and he did so by making local oyster beds that were fed into by these channels and dams he created so he could control the flow of seawater. And he then touted his water source as home to the tastiest oysters. 
folks were blown away by this. Like, people came to study it. Uh, And then he went on to invent heated swimming pools. So, yeah, we have this fellow and oysters to thank for that. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the – that's basically the first time in in Western civilization, anyway, that we have – Solid record of someone really doing the oyster farming thing and doing it successfully. Right. The French were also in on this oyster game, and their coastline boasted many natural oyster beds. Oh, yeah. Yeah. By the time of the Roman occupation in 4th century CE poet Ausonios, his description of the technical aspect of oyster farming in France, which is not exactly what we have today, but similar, was so detailed and advanced, for the time at least, that it most likely had been practiced for quite a while. And like like we kind of mentioned earlier, oyster shells had a lot of uses because they have lime. They were ground up and used in cement or as fertilizer. Oh, yeah. Some of the limestone used to build towns along the south coast of France existed thanks to millennia of oyster populations fossilizing. Mm-hmm. And jumping way ahead, in Australia around about the 1860s, the use of oyster shells and cement production led to a major depletion of the oyster beds so that the government had to step in and set up cultivation practices based off what the French were doing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. Oysters enjoyed this huge popularity in Paris during the 1600s. Uh, there may have been over 2,000 oyster sellers there during the reign of Louis XIV. Uh, as they are today, folks ate oysters either cooked or raw, and when eaten raw, usually with a bit of lemon juice or vinegar. Mm. However, uh, Alexandre Dumas, uh, a famous author of uh, Count of Monte Cristo and other, other things, uh, wrote that, quote, the true connoisseurs swallow them without lemon, vinegar, pepper, or anything else. Just straight up. Straight up. Uh, recipes for cooked oysters around that time in France included oyster stews and fritters and uh, broth made by not quite boiling oysters to be used in basically anything and or everything, which sounds delicious. Um, our buddy Francois-Pierre Lavarenne wrote in his book Le Cuisinaire Francois that you should open up your oysters and save the nicest to be eaten raw and then take the rest, add uh, butter, breadcrumbs, and a sprinkle of nutmeg, and then roast them in their shells on an iron griddle. And now that I've read that, I really can't stop thinking about it. I want it so much. That sounds so good. Oh, um, there's a legend uh, that a steward to the uh, royal house of Condé, uh, a man by the name of Attel, was once in charge of feeding Louis XIV and his traveling party. And by traveling party, I mean like 5,000 people. And the pressure was so great that when a shipment of oysters from the coast failed to arrive on time, Vattel committed suicide by falling on his own sword rather than face the wrath of the bougie aristocracy. They were serious about their oysters, huh? Very, very serious. Okay. Well, moving on to North America. (laughs) Before Columbus arrived, Columbus again! (laughs) Native American women harvested and prepared oysters, sometimes preserving them to last through the winter. And when the Dutch first colonized what was then New Amsterdam, what we know today as New York City, in the 1600s, they discovered just so many oyster beds. Oh, yeah. Some biologists estimate that over half of the world's oyster population may have once lived in New York Harbor, covering 22,000 acres. Uh, Over half. And this meant that they were cheaper than pretty much all other livestock. And that meant that people ate a lot of them. Mm -hmm. You could get them from street vendors. The oyster shells were used to pave Pearl Street and the foundations of buildings. Um, 
To prevent over-harvesting, there were rules put in place about when and where you could harvest oysters. But at one point in the 18th century, the diet of the poor living in cities was pretty much just bread and oysters. Oof. The average New Yorker had two oyster-based meals a week. Wow. Mm-hmm. Alas, those regulations they put in place didn't work, and today they're pretty much extinct from New York Harbor, but there is a pretty uh, serious concerted effort to bring them back to boost the oyster population. Yeah. Perhaps not as big as it once was. No. Yeah. But to revitalize it a bit. And New York is also thought to be where the first oysters were canned in 1819, and it is also, also most likely the birthplace of the oyster alcohol pairing. Ah. Yeah. From New York, taverns pairing oysters with booze spread, eventually arriving to New Orleans, which was home to much of America's absinthe. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the discovery of the absinthe oyster combo followed soon after. Uh, and of course, the, the French immigrants to New Orleans would have brought with them their, their appreciation for oysters. Yes. Um, in Charles McKay's 1859 book, Life, Liberty in America, he wrote, The rich consume oysters and champagne, the poorer classes consume oysters and large beer, and that is one of the principal social differences between the two sections of the community. Check. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of love. Yeah. But, I mean, today, we still, like, there's a restaurant in Decatur near Atlanta Mm -hmm. that does oysters and absinthe and oysters and champagne, oysters and beer. Still do it. I think I've had all of those combinations, in fact. I I believe I have as well. None of them them suck. No, they're all pretty pretty solid. Mm -hmm. Oysters weren't just big in New York. The U.S. went through something called the oyster craze. In the mid to late 1800s. Oh, yeah. During peak production from 1880 to 1910, the U.S. produced 160 million pounds a year. Oh, my goodness. More than all other countries put together. By the 19th century, these things called oyster saloons started popping up where you could indulge on some fresh oysters, like, real quick. And these might have been some of America's first restaurants, like, outside of inns. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they were marked by these big circular red and white signs. And you could get, uh, it was a go-to lunch option for working men in coastal cities, but it was also frequented by politicians. Huh. New York City had 850 alone. Wow. And some even had curtain booths for women. Oh, wow. So the ladies could get some oysters. I know. (laughs) Women in public. Oh, Oh, my goodness. Ooh la la. (laughs) You could get oysters pretty much any way you wanted. You could get them stewed, scalloped, fried, in a pie, in soup, in patties. In the fall... And I love this. Some people would mix some damp sea sand with some cornmeal in a corner in their cellar and bury oysters in there so they wouldn't run out in the winter. Oh. And they'd water this little oyster bed twice a week or so, like a plant. (laughs) And (laughs) when you wanted some oysters, you just went digging in there. And they were called cellar oysters. They were popular in things like oyster pie or stew since they weren't as fresh. Uh Uh-huh. And no host worth their salt would neglect to have these luscious bivalves, as they were called. And you could serve them around this time. Ultra fancy oyster plates started coming out oh, for wow. purchase. Yeah, uh, the, the mid eighteen hundreds is also where we get oyster crackers from. Oh. Um, and no, they are not made with oysters. They were uh, they were served with oyster stews in New England, and you know they slightly resemble oysters with, with their kind of circular shape that consists of two rounded sides, top and bottom, that can crack apart from one another. Yeah, I see it. Yeah. 
This crazy demand for oysters also resulted in the Oyster Wars, a series of violent skirmishes between oyster pirates and oystermen operating in the Chesapeake Bay and Potomac River from 1865 to 1959. What? That is pretty recent. That's almost 100 years of oyster piracy. I know. Also, oyster piracy. I know. There's so many exclamation points in the outline. Well-deserved. Yes. (laughs) The oysters from this area, they they grew to be up to a foot long. Wow. Yeah, they were very plentiful. Ships would sometimes run aground on them. Oh, my goodness. And records exist of them being enjoyed by John Smith, and they were a favorite of George Washington. Huh. As the early 1800s saw depletion of New England's oysters, boats from up north started coming further and further south, looking for some oysters, and the locals didn't like that. Mm. Both Virginia and Maryland passed laws that made oyster fishing illegal for non-residents. Baltimore became the hub of oyster canning and shipping. And I think we've said before, just canning in general. Mm -hmm. Um, First with the oyster line, that's what it was called, to Ohio, and then expanding out so that Chesapeake Bay oysters could be enjoyed pretty much anywhere in the U.S. As technology developed and it was discovered that if you steamed them, um, it sped up the shucking process, more and more were canned and shipped. 17 million bushels of Chesapeake Oysters had been harvested by 1875, and by the production peak of the 1880s, 20 million bushels of Chesapeake oysters were being harvested a year. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oof. And there were two main ways used to harvest oysters. By hand, using wooden, wooden tongs to lift the catch out of the water, or by dredging. Maryland only permitted dredging in deep waters, but of course the dredgers didn't always abide. Mm -hmm. And this sometimes resulted in gunfights. Oh, you know. Oyster gunfights. Absolutely. That seems like the best way to resolve the situation. Sure. Not helping things at all was the not-so-well-defined border between Maryland and Virginia. So Virginia oystermen would come into Maryland's waters looking for oysters. Ah. Yeah, thinking they had a claim to them. And Maryland oystermen were not cool with that. (laughs) Things got so bad that in 1868, the Maryland Oyster Police Force was formed. What? Oyster Police Force. They only had one steamboat. Oh, yeah. For that whole area, though. So they were they were pretty limited in what they could accomplish. By the 1920s, oyster production in the area dropped to three million bushels a year, which is pretty substantial. Yeah. Um, and the discovery of a new oyster bed in the Potomac in the 1940s reignited the oyster wars. Oh wow! Yeah, with Virginia oyster pirates and dredgers called the Mosquito Fleet getting into chases and gunfights with the oyster police. Why have I never seen a big action movie about this? I know. I mean, come on, Hollywood, get on it. Yeah, like you could do special screenings in in places with oysters for dinner. It would be... It would be such a hit. Get it together. Come on. Mm -hmm. All of this came to a head in 1959 when Virginian Berkeley Muse, what a name, went dredging for some Maryland oysters, was spotted by the oyster police, and shot while attempting to flee. Oh, wow. He bled to death on his boat. Oh, And the two states involved passed some legislation that finally brought an end to the oyster wars. Huh. Yes. For further listening, our sister podcast, Stuff You Missed in History Class, has a whole episode on this. Huh. Yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, 
Over in Europe, there were other oyster troubles to contend with. Uh, Native oysters called flat or European oysters were susceptible to a lot of parasites and and other species would become invasive, particularly Portuguese oysters, which had actually stowed away from India as barnacles on trading ships. You know, the, the, the Portuguese ships would arrive home and they would shuck the barnacles off, which were oysters, and then the oysters would just be like, oh, this is chill, just set up shop here. This is our new home. Yeah. Um... A series of of laws and uh, livestock diseases affected oyster populations of both types, though, and and eventually whole other species had to be imported from Japan in order to keep numbers up. And apart from, you know, the war, oyster producers (laughs) in the U.S. did suffer some other setbacks, the first being related to the pure food hysteria of the early 1900s, that's what it was called, people started to link outbreaks of typhoid and GI disorders to oysters. Mm -hmm. Newspapers ran sensationalist headlines and stories about this connection pretty frequently, so people started switching to more expensive beef. Ah. Huh. Yeah. And kind of side note, in 1907, oyster grower Henry C. Rowe formed the Oyster Growers and Dealers of North America to help better the oyster's image. With little success. Oh. Oh. But this organization later renamed itself the Shellfish Institute of North America and is uh, one of America's oldest trade associations. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, getting back to the pure food hysteria, uh, tougher oyster packing and handling rules were introduced in 1909, which increased operating cost. In 1924, several people, mostly in Chicago, got typhoid after eating oysters, and some of them died. Hmm. Um, and the oyster demand dropped 50 to 80 percent. What? Yeah. It was called, quote, the greatest disaster which ever befell the industry. Oh, my goodness. Very dark times for oysters. And speaking of, prohibition didn't help either since alcohol and oysters go together like birds of a feather. And a lot of the places where oysters were enjoyed got shut down because huh. they had alcohol. Sure. Yeah. And then... In the 1950s, a new disease called MSX decimated oyster beds in Delaware and Chesapeake Bay. We're talking 90 to 95% loss. Oh, wow. Yeah. These problems persisted not quite on that scale all the way up to the mid-1990s. Wow. Yeah. And another problem. (laughs) I just found this uh, very surprising. Starfish. Are oyster predators. Yeah, they love an oyster. Yeah, some fishermen use these things called oyster mops to collect starfish and drop them into a tub of boiling water to kill them. No. Yeah. That, that's a that's a very ultimate answer to I that know. problem. Okay. Ugh. Starfish, by the way, are such good oyster predators. Uh, they uh, they produce a paralyzing agent that once they've pried open the oyster's shell with their with their thick, meaty arms, they squirt this paralyzing agent in at the oyster so that it can't use its uh, its adductor muscle to close the shell up again. Ugh. And then they then they squirt their their stomach their their stomach out through their mouth and they digest the oyster in its shell. I. I... Saw some videos of this on YouTube, and it was both horrifying and impressive. <laughs> as much of nature is. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> In 1983, the EPA started a cleanup effort in Chesapeake Bay. 
that helped restore consumer confidence in oyster consumption safety. Huh. Okay. The program is ongoing, um, but the new proposed budget would do away with it. Hmm. Virginia sold $16 million of oysters in 2015, and they have a Virginia oyster trail, like a wine trail. What? Yeah. Oh, I want to do that so badly. Okay. All right. Field trip. I want to do that so badly. Yeah. Another problem, the Gulf oyster industry took a huge hit in 2010 with the BP oil spill. But it started to bounce back. In fact, the South traditionally has been unable or they have a difficult time selling their oysters because they grow in these really big clusters. So you can't sell, like, individual oysters. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and the adoption of aquacultures and hatcheries in the region has changed that. And we're hopefully going to visit one of these. Yeah. But uh, it's going to be pretty big for the southern oyster industry. Yeah. Um, random fact. Murder Point oysters are so named because one guy killed another guy in an oyster territory dispute where these oysters are farmed. I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> okay. So much, so much murder in this oyster I episode. No, who knew? Huh. Well, that is oyster history. Yeah. In the shell. Oh, something, some kind of pun there. Yeah. So let's talk about some oyster science. But first, let's pause for another quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressings, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes. Okay, so so science and health and weather, oysters are an aphrodisiac. Yes. Uh, first, nutrition. Oysters are high in protein, uh, good fats, iron, calcium, a few other vitamins and minerals, and they're really pretty good for you. Uh, they're, they're filling without being too heavy. Uh, eat more oysters. Yay. Okay. 
however, if you're immunocompromised or have a liver disease, you probably shouldn't eat them raw due to danger of infection with a few types of bacteria that can cause serious problems in humans. Um, they're in the same genus as a, as a cholera. Um, it's the Vibrio genus. Yes. Uh, r- related to that, is it actually dangerous to eat oysters in month that don't contain the letter R in their name? I have never heard this before, and now I'm seeing it all over, oh. like just randomly. Yeah. It's probably because I've been researching oysters. That, that could be. That's that could probably be it. absolutely what it is. Yes. Uh, the, it's an old saying, and there is a little bit of truth to it in the Northern Hemisphere at any rate, um, because months without the letter R uh, are May, June, July, and August, uh, which are the height of summer. And these potentially dangerous Vibrio bacteria thrive in warmer weather. So there is a slightly higher risk of infection when you eat raw oysters during the summer months, especially if they're from warmer areas like the Gulf of Mexico. But infection is pretty rare. According to the CDC, uh, vibriosis causes about 80,000 illnesses and 100 deaths every year in the United States, which is nothing compared to, like, say, salmonella, which causes 1.2 million illnesses and 450 deaths every year. So don't be too scared, but do, do use your best judgment. Yeah. Along the aphrodisiac lines, now that I've talked about the terrifying disease lines, um, <laughs> so there, there's no evidence that oysters are an aphrodisiac. <gasps> what? And I know you've heard this science news story from like a decade ago that said that there was ev- that there was evidence along those lines, um, which was a case of poor science journalism. Oh no, that never happens. Never ever. No. Which means our jobs are done. Yay! We can all go home. Goodbye. Yeah. Oh, no. Okay, so, so so what happened in this particular case was there was an undergraduate study into the chemical makeup of mussels, which are, of course, related to oysters, um, where the researchers found this amino acid called D-aspartic. I think I'm saying that right. I'm going to move forward. Um, and, and that amino acid has been found to increase the levels of sex hormones in lab rats. But they did not test oysters. They did not test anything in humans. However, uh, the funny thing about rumored aphrodisiacs is that they're really placebo-compatible, which means that if you believe that they're going to work, it's basically a coin flip of a chance that they'll totally work. I feel like, yeah, if you want something to work in that situation, uh-huh. you're already kind of— You're right there. You're already kind of there. Yeah, so so much of so much of uh, arousal is is in your brain that, yeah, if you— if you're into it, I mean, I mean, eat some oysters and have fun. Oh yeah, yeah. But uh, science-wise, no. oh, back to scary things. Okay, uh, okay. So, so, uh, so pollution. Oysters are bottom feeders in shallow areas, which means that they're usually right by an ocean uh, coastline, right along with any pollutants that dump out from local waterways or the groundwater. Plus, like lots of sea creatures, they can wind up storing harmful stuff in their bodies. And researchers have found traces of stuff like mercury, arsenic, and human medications in oysters. But, but again, probably not enough to worry about unless you're either immunocompromised or eating like a lot of oysters. How much is a lot? Which I, I, I mean, I mean, if you binge on like a couple dozen every once in a while, I think you're fine. I've been known to get into some trouble at Oyster Fest. If you, <laughs> if like Casanova, you're eating like 50 every morning, then I might cut that out. Oh, I can't afford that. So yeah. no worries there. Oh, excellent. Well, good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be fine. Oh, oh, uh, uh, back, back to, back to sexuality though. Uh, <laughs> or oysters, oysters' reproductive lives are really interesting. 
I mean, from from a human perspective anyway, I mean, for them, it's normal, everyday kind of stuff. Uh, Oysters change their sex at least once during their lifetimes. Oh, at least once. They're hermaphroditic. Uh, They tend to be male and produce sperm early on in their lives. Um, Sperm production requires fewer resources, and they're really busy bulking up their shells at that point. Mm -hmm. When they get a little bit older, they tend to switch to female sex and egg production. And they can switch back and forth depending on uh, the, the the conditions in their environment. So, I love that you wrote bulking up the shell for the male oyster. <laughs> See him like <laughs> like lift, lifting like lifted weights. shell weights. Yeah, yeah. uh huh. <sighs> <sighs> That's pretty great. Okay, let's talk about some popular some popular oyster recipes. Oh yeah. So the first one I thought of is oysters Rockefeller, and this is. Supposedly, allegedly, New Orleans chef Jules Alciatore. I wanted to say it in an Italian way, but I, I looked up a video, and it's Alciatore of Antoine's restaurant. Um, supposedly lays claims to this recipe. Mm-hmm. And the story goes he created it in 1889. The original recipe is kind of a culinary secret. Oh. Yeah. But it involves baking oysters with parsley, shallots, Tabasco sauce, and butter. And they are quite delicious if you've never had them prepared this way. Yes. I recommend it. Mm-hmm. Pigs in a blanket. What? That's yeah. A, that's a hot dog wrapped in dough. That's what I thought too. But apparently this used to refer to broiled oysters wrapped in bacon. Oh, my goodness. I know. Going all the way back to 1884. Uh, it also goes by the name Angels on a Horseback. And yeah, we should try this yes. soon. Another one. I've never heard of this. Oysters Kirkpatrick. Have you heard of this, Lauren? I have not. So this probably first appeared on a menu sometime in the 1920s at San Francisco's Palace Hotel. According to the hotel, it's broiled oysters topped with ketchup, bacon, and green peppers, sometimes with cheese. Huh. It it kept popping up in search results. So uh, uh, it, I mean, I believe it's delicious because it's made with oysters. The and ketchup is kind of throwing me, and I love ketchup, but I would definitely give it a go. I mean, it, it's got a little bit of a vinegar component, so I, I suppose yeah, that that's, that's true. You know. Like cocktail sauce-ish. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, there's the Thanksgiving tradition of using oysters in stuffing in New England. Oh, uh, which, of course, makes perfect sense. It does. I've never had this, but people still do it, uh-huh. I hear. Uh, it goes back pretty far, too. The first written recipe appearing in a 1685 cookbook out of London called The Accomplished Cook. Yeah, not not with an E-D on the end of accomplished, but a T, rather, yep. <laughs> just for flavor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It would make sense that it would make the journey to North America. And since oysters were so plentiful and popular in New England, it would make sense that they would be added to stuffing. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to try that as well. Just things I want to try. Also, we can't end this episode without mentioning oyster vending machines. This is a thing. I need this in my life. It exists, but it only exists in France oh. currently. And it's 24-7. What? Just, you know, whenever you have your oyster craving, there's a vending machine. They're kept refrigerated and restocked daily, and they're sold closed to prevent food poisoning. And they're actually pretty inexpensive for oysters. For oysters. Uh-huh. Uh, they cost about $8 for a dozen. Oh, yeah. That's a totally good price for an oyster. Yeah. So you have to shuck them yourself, like on the street? Oh, that's true. What if? Because I imagine if you're going at 3 a.m., say you might be a little ine- inebriated, possibly, and then you get, <laughs> you get this, you get your oyster craving, 
you get your oyster out of the vending machine, hmm, there's possibility for injury there. Yeah. Shucking oysters is not the easiest thing in the world. I've never tried it. I've watched what? carefully while other people do it. Oh, it's it it's it can be very difficult. There's a there's definitely a method to it. You want to go in right at the knuckle, but if there's alcohol involved, it, <laughs> it, that's that's the thing. Like by the time anyone ever gets around to shucking an oyster around me, like yeah, I, I feel like my time for shucking has passed. <laughs> yes, it's a limited. There's a small window when you should be doing it. Really. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, uh, and I wanted to mention that uh, if you'd like to hear more about oysters, the uh, the Gastropod podcast has a really great episode where they interview Rowan Jacobson, who's the author of The Essential Oyster, and uh, I, I found it enlightening, and you might too. Yes. It was very enlightening. And that brings us to the end of this classic episode. Uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, what former Annie and Lauren had to say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, this, was, this was a fun one. I was clearly hyper-caffeinated, but, you know, that happens to the best of us. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's any episode, roll the dice, it's likely one of us is. <laughs> Hypercaffeinated or undercaffeinated. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. And it's usually a trade-off. I feel like we I feel like we do a good job of balancing each other out like that. Yes. You know, yeah. we try. We, we try. try. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes we succeed. Sometimes yeah. we don't. Yeah. I was also just really excited about like bivalves and murder. Um I mean, those are two things to get excited about. They are. Oh, and speaking of murder, um, Annie, may I may I plug a new show that I'm working on? I mean, a segue like speaking of murder, I <laughs> I think deserves a plug. Yes. <laughs> All right. So um, so y'all are familiar with uh with Aaron Menke um and his production company Grim and Mild. Uh, they they do um lore and Cabinet of Curiosities, um, a couple other shows. Yeah, and um, they decided that they wanted to do a new show that focuses on on these dark, true, weird stories from specifically American history. And so that is how the show American Shadows came about. And uh, they tapped me to narrate it uh, because, I i don't know, I, I've been training all my life to be both very factual and sort of goth, I guess. Yeah, agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's uh, it's the reason that I that I enjoy it is not just because of you know the the, the murder and dismemberment and et cetera et cetera, but also the, the way that the Grim and Mild uh, writing and research team is constructing these stories is is to to bring to light these stories where you know it was a time and place where where stuff kind of sucked. Um, and it probably sucked specifically for a couple of people really intensely. Um, but at the end of the proverbial day, uh, you know, truth and justice prevail. And so those are really nice stories <laughs> to, to hear about right now. Yes, yes, yeah. true. And uh, if you couldn't tell, listeners, we are big fans of the macabre. Uh, you have to say it in that specific <laughs> voice, I'm pretty sure. You do, and overpronounce the R, yeah. Yes, that's... Mm-hmm. In the dictionary, I've I looked. Yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're big fans of that and uh, big fans of Lauren, obviously. No, yeah, no, I'm not always a big fan of Lauren, but 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 thank you. Well, thank you. I am here to fill in the gap. <laughs> there and you go. So, yes, yes. Um, so highly, yeah, highly recommend checking that out, listeners. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's fun to do, and you get to you get to hear my serious voice. 
And also, it has provided a lot of very funny instances where we end a recording and Lauren will just say, okay, I got to go talk about murder. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I hope it's for work. <laughs> mm. <laughs> oh, oh, and our and our dear friend, uh, uh, Miranda, uh, Miranda Hawkins is yeah. um, producing it and she's just putting it together in really, really lovely ways. Both of us are, are humans, um, Miranda and I, who probably over-associate with Marceline from Adventure uh, Time. So mm-hmm, we make mm-hmm. a good, we make a good duo, I think. Yes. <laughs> Yes, I would agree. Miranda's awesome. Oh, gosh, yeah. Another, man, I, I miss all you guys. I really miss my coworkers. <laughs> I do, too. Coworkers and friends alike. Yes. Um, <laughs> and you know what? We, we love hearing from you listeners. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can email us at hello at saverpod.com. Yes, because you're also our friends. Uh, yes. We're also on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at saverpod. And we do hope to hear from you. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks as always to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.